Welcome to the Energy Council Podcast Investor Series. Hey guys, welcome to the Energy Council's Investor Series Podcast. I'm your host, Ben West, and today I am joined by Griffin Perry, co-founder and managing director at Greyrock Energy Partners. Since raising their first fund worth around $50 million back in 2013, Greyrock have about half a billion dollars worth of assets under management today, built up around a successful strategy of investing primarily in non-operated working interest. During the course of this episode, Griffin talks about the advantages of adopting a non-op investment approach and how this strategy allows them to maximize their investments as well as protect them against potential downside. He also goes on to discuss the different ways in which investors are getting creative to find more optionality on the exit in the current climate, such as through securitizations and SPACs. Hope you guys enjoy. Hi, Griffin. Thanks very much for doing this today. It's great to have you on. Thank you very much, Ben. I'm excited to be a part of this. Griffin, I like to start things off on a more personal note. Just give our audience a bit of background to set the scene, just to understand a bit more about you, where you're coming from, and a bit of background to the firm. So let's just start with you personally, your journey. Give us an idea of your journey up until now. Where did you grow up? Where did you study? And where did your interest in the energy industry originate? And how did you get into the industry? Just give us a run through of your career up until founding Greyrock Energy Partners back in 2013. Sure. So I'm a fifth generation Texan. Family has been here for a long time. Was actually born in a small town called Haskell, Texas, out west of where I live now in Dallas. My grandfather actually wildcatted some wells back in the 70s. And that was my first introduction kind of to the energy space. Fast forward, moved to Austin, and then ultimately went to college at Vanderbilt University, where I majored in economics and history. Spent a short stint at London School of Economics before coming back here and began my career at UBS and ultimately Deutsche Bank. In 2011, left banks to go and work with some smaller firms in the energy space here in Dallas, which is where I really got my introduction and deep dive into non-operated working interest. In that time frame, there was not a lot of institutional capital focused on the space. Most of the assets were either in oil and gas companies owned by people that had been in the industry and were doing it kind of as an aside because when you're in the non-op side, you obviously don't have to have a huge operating team. You can do your evaluation of the asset and be able to participate alongside an operator. And then, you know, it was around that time that my co-founder, Matt Miller and Kirk Lazarine and I began to sat down and formulate the strategy for Greyrock. This was 2011, 2012. It was kind of the beginning of the end of the great shale flip game. It was the first time that Chesapeake had ever put 300,000 acres of Eagleford up for sale and they didn't flip it kind of immediately. And you were just beginning to see some folks realize that there was some delineation across the shale plays and people, it was the very beginning of some wells beginning to make economic sense versus just proving hydrocarbons were in the, in the, I mean, in the ground. So with that, we decided to go out and found Greyrock in 2013, like most young folks bootstrapped it and were able to convince enough people based upon our strategy and the team to give us a little capital. So, you know, we raised our first fund. It was a $50 million fund back in 2013 to begin investing primarily in non-operated working interests. That's really interesting. And again, let's focus in then on Greyrock Energy Partners. You've talked us through a bit about the journey. There's clearly a sort of turning point in the industry, as you mentioned, back between 2011 to 2013. So, and clearly you were entering in with a focus on the non-op side, the non-op space. 
what opportunity did you see in the market that made you launch the firm back in 2013? What was your goal when you set out? Yeah, so initially, you know, when we set out, we wanted to be a direct LP private equity firm that would own assets directly. And then by doing that, you know, we're cutting out a layer of fees. We were focused on single well economics from the beginning and full cycle economics. We were never part of a, hey, we need to buy an asset and hope someone's going to pay us more per acre. We needed to see that, hey, we could drill a well create a positive cash flow, recycle some of that cash flow, and then continue to do that time and time again. It's a slower burn IRR and ROI for our investors. But ultimately, by doing that, you create a pretty significant amount of downside protection. You know, obviously, we've been through since 2013. We're now in our third price collapse since then. And, you know, we've seen some good times. We've seen some really, really bad times. We've seen some challenges in the industry. But by us being non-op and owning our own assets, we've been under many bankruptcies. Many of our operators have gone bankrupt. But because we own the assets ourselves, it's titled in the courthouse. We're not in their debt structure. The assets cannot be taken from us because someone else is over levered. We've been able to weather this storm and, you know, have not had those issues that a lot of the public companies have had over the last 10 years. Completely. It seems like that approach and the protection against future downside was sort of ahead of your time. Again, from a lot of the conversations we've been having with investors in our network this year, that's far more an approach that's being adopted today. People reacting to the current downturns. And again, as you said, it's not the first time we've seen these types of drops and, and crashes in the industry. So it's surprising perhaps that other investors haven't taken a similar approach beforehand. And, and perhaps you guys were a bit ahead of the game. And just with that in mind, you've already alluded to it. You've been through two, three pretty tumultuous downturns since you started. Obviously, that approach protected yourself to a large extent against those downturns and the commodity price drops and crashes, etc. Have you had to change your approach or has your strategy changed at all since you started out back in 2013? Just as you've experienced these downturns, new challenges have come your way or has that strategy pretty much remained consistent and provide a strong platform to weather these low price environments and difficult times in the industry? I would say the strategy has stayed pretty consistent in a sense that, you know, I mentioned earlier, we've always been focused on full cycle economics. It's one thing to say a well costs seven to $10 million to drill, but if you had to pay 40, 50, $60,000 per acre to get into that well, you know, I think it's a little disingenuous to claim that single well economics instead of looking at full cycle returns. And that's something we've always done as a firm. If any of the listeners have followed our firm for the last seven years. We write very thorough quarterly letters. You know, a lot of that heavy lifting specifically on the macro side is done by my partner, Matt Miller. And, you know, he's brilliant at it. And, you know, we he's been pounding the table that these companies are so over levered that they're not focused on returns at a cash flow single economic level. And ultimately, you know, the debt burden will overwhelm them. And we've seen that happen. The shift in our strategy as a firm has really just been uh, due to our size. We've grown significantly, about a half a billion dollars of assets under management now. Still a relatively small firm in the energy landscape. However, within the non-operated working interest firm, our side, you know, a pretty substantial player in that now. And with that size and the ability to weather storms and, and have callable capital that is ready, you know, we can close deals within two weeks or definitely come to terms within two weeks and, you know, get under a PSA. That gives us a, an advantage. And especially now in today's environment where a lot of larger companies are very focused on 
cutting capex or reducing or you know living within budgets in an operator and business you know you are hyper focused on your wells and the wells you're drilling a lot of times you'll have legacy positions underneath other operators and they're talking to each other but without that being their core focus they don't really know when wells are going to be proposed on them and oftentimes you know these are not small checks they could be we recently closed on an acquisition with 45 million dollars worth of drilling that was imminent and that's very large company when your budget it is a hundred million dollars for non-op for the entire year and you get hit with a surprise 45 million dollars for drilling you look to offload that and that's something that we have been able to take advantage of as a institutional quality counterparty as i mentioned you know at the very beginning a lot of folks who are focused on this space are family offices or people that just don't have the ability to write a 50 million dollar check within a month um, and that's been the biggest change in our strategy, just being able to work with these larger companies. But a lot of times, you know, the entry costs on these assets are still fairly low, even though there's a substantial amount of CapEx. That's really interesting. And I want to focus in specifically on non-op space, because as you say, you're a substantial player there. And I, I think when we've spoken in the past, you've said there is actually not all that much competition in the non-op space. So it will be interesting to delve a bit deeper into those topics there. But before we do, I think just to, to set the scene for those listening who may not be as familiar with Greyrock Energy Partners, can you just give us a summary of where you are now, your current exposure? I know you said you're nearing half a billion dollars assets under management, but just give us a summary of your current exposure to the industry. Are you entirely focused on upstream EMP? What's your base in coverage? Again, is your focus entirely on non-op at the moment? Just speak to that a little bit, if you wouldn't mind. So we have been focused on the major unconventional plays in the United States. Our team is very engineering focused, engineering first. So every project we look at runs through reservoir engineering you know, on evaluation, and then each new well proposal from any of our operators goes through a full economic evaluation by our engineering team. That side of our business has, has allowed us to now, we own assets in the Eagleford, in the Permian Basin, both on the Midland Basin side and the Delaware Basin side, the Bakken, the Haynesville. We own a small legacy position in the scoop stack from our first fund. And then those are our primary plays that we own assets in today. We've evaluated the other kind of unconventional basins as well. The DJ, the Powder River, the Marcellus Utica. We have always been flexible with where we are going to deploy our capital. And as I mentioned, we are full cycle economic investors. So, you know, we are basin agnostic as long as we can get in at a good price and actually make money either buying current production or participating alongside our operators. Yes, we are non-op focused, but we also have a few joint ventures in our portfolio where there will be specific assets with an operator. Oftentimes they're legacy family businesses, you know, large operators that have been around for a long time, but it may or may not be public. And we'll partner, take anywhere between 40 and 50% of a project, you know, within a specific area, call it a thousand to 10,000 net acres where we'll partner as a joint venture there. We are in about 2000 wells, have 50 different operators in our platform. Yes, you are correct. We are entirely upstream ENP today, and we own a few mineral acres as well, but there's other people that are more focused on that. And so the way we kind of describe it is the deal kind of has to fall in our laps or come along with another material non-op position. We have the ability to operate within our team. You know, we do that primarily if we find assets that the non-op is the larger percentage of the assets, and then we can go in and operate to continue cash flows on an operated piece. 
that's really useful thanks griffin and i think so that sets the scene nicely now coming in on what i really want to focus in on which is the non-operated working interests you're focused entirely on non-operated working interests predominantly on lower to mid-market opportunities so why non-op what are the advantages of investing in non-op over operated working interests sort of why have you taken that approach well, you know, you think about what we set out to be as a firm. So we want to own a diversified portfolio of assets, give our investors the opportunity to pick and choose the best places under any operator. We're also able to do it without being a part of what has been historically a bloated SGNA picture in the upstream oil and gas space. So, you know, when we own an asset, we are contractually obligated to the operator to pay for our share of the drilling and completion costs, a little bit of the operations of the well, and then we get our share of the revenue net what goes to the mineral owner. You know, that business strategy and what it has allowed us to do is be hyper-focused on the best areas within an operator. ExxonMobil has assets all across the United States. There's areas where they drill very economic wells, and there's areas where they drill wells that may or may not be as economic, but they may have different reasons for it. You know, one of the advantages we have is, you know, we look kind of like a synthetic ETF of upstream oil and gas players, but we're just in their, some of their best assets. That is something that's unique, that you can't really get that sort of exposure through investing in public companies. You can get that exposure through a traditional private equity firm. However, you have to be pretty big. I mentioned we're in 2000 wells with 50 operators. Even the largest private equity firms do not have 50 operating teams in their portfolio. And within that, you know, a lot of them are focused on different strategies. You know, some of it's buying and flipping, but it's not necessarily just truly producing the assets, which, as you've mentioned, that's a shift in the industry that we're happy to see investors coming around to our way of viewing it to say, hey, the way out of this is let's focus on returns, drill good wells, create a lot of cash flow. That brings other investors back to the world once the EBITDA on, on, at a company level is, is so high that it's hard to stay away. And if, especially if you can get to a distribution model, which Grayrock has done since our inception, you know, we'll build a position and then begin to make distributions out to our investors, oftentimes in the low teens. So those are some of the advantages we have and that we see in the business. You know, you touched upon competition. There's definitely other groups out there that do it that are bigger than Grayrock. But a lot of times, you know, their strategy will shift. Another benefit of what we have is because we are basin agnostic, if the Delaware basin is the hottest basin and everybody's willing to pay a ton of money for those positions, they may not be as focused on the Eagleford. And because of that, we are able to enter the Eagleford at a material discount just because we're patient capital. It's interesting what you say. It seems that you've really got the ability to scale up significantly in a way that other investors don't necessarily have. I know when we spoke recently, you said there's no high end to the number of wells that you as a firm can manage, given the strength of your platform, your processes, the technologies you have in place. So why does the non-op platform you've built up make Greyrock so well positioned to scale up? And just with a view to that, obviously the current market conditions, the current climate is presenting a lot of opportunities to investors like yourselves, bring a lot of new opportunities on the market at a discount. So why does the non-op platform you've built up make you so well positioned to take advantage of these? And what types of opportunities might you be eyeing up over the next six to 12 months? 
when we began to build this firm, there is not a platform out there that has a very good non-op management system. You've got groups on the mineral side, drilling info. Now, Interverse has gone out and bought a bunch of these technology companies to build out platform. But what we found was we needed to focus internally. And about four years ago, we spent a significant amount of money building out our team and building out our platform to allow for a few different aspects of our business to, to talk to each other and for us to have a huge advantage. So one of the things that we've done is we have completely integrated our systems between engineering, accounting, land, finance, so that at any point in time, the different verticals can know exactly what's going on from a cash flow perspective, from an engineering perspective, you know, what leases we have that may be under expiration. When a well proposal comes in, it's streamlined to go into land to say, hey, we've got this well proposal. Engineering then goes to evaluate it, then comes to the, the managing director's investment committee to approve or, or non-consent a well. And by building out that platform, there's nobody, I mean, there's other groups out there that have similar technologies, but what we are able to do is execute quickly. Our bottleneck, you know, just in all honesty, is engineering because we do rely on professional engineers on staff to evaluate the projects. You know, we're looking at typically three to five new acquisitions at any given time. And, you know, we may have anywhere between five and 30 wells in our portfolio that are in some stage of either drilling, completion, proposal, or being worked over. And so that's a lot to handle as, as a firm. We were able to do it with 16 people by our accounting system being almost fully automated. You know, that gives us a the ability to make quick checks and balances to see if we're getting paid by a certain operator or if there's some issues going on with different wells. And then because we have done that, you know, we have grown from zero wells to 2000 in our platform over the last seven years. Drilling has slowed down lately. So, you know, when we are making acquisitions, onboarding a new asset, maybe a place where we add the most wells or positions, but we're able to, you know, with each incremental, you know, call it hundred million dollars that we go put to work, you know, we don't have to go hire a brand new team. We're able to just, at this point, it's a plug and play for any asset that we were to acquire. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think just keeping on this theme of scalability, it's a word that keeps getting thrown about these days. I think given a lot of the conversations we're having at the moment, particularly from investors, are about how the market is about going undergoing a consolidation and that what investors want to see is economies of scale and and we're likely to continue to see these large scale mergers that we've seen come to the fore over the course of the last month or two. And there are just a couple of things I wanted to touch upon here. I mean what creative ways are investors like Greyrock finding? I mean, if we look at scalability, obviously the first step, I suppose, is actually managing your internal assets, your existing portfolio, before you look to onboard new opportunities. Therefore, you have to maximize the existing investments that you have. And I suppose, what are the creative ways that investors like Greyrock are doing, are finding to maximize these existing investments? How do you continue to build value, create further value with your existing investments before looking to onboard new assets and make new acquisitions? Sure. So scalability, I want to touch on that a little bit, and then we'll get into, you know, maximizing our assets. So when we talk about scaling in the oil and gas space, right, a lot of what you're seeing 
is very large companies that are merging or buying each other right now. And the scalability you're really hearing focused on there is one, they want longer term core inventory. And two, is they said, if we are managing two companies with the personnel of one and a half companies by letting some folks go, that ultimately cuts that SG&A burden. And that's been a huge drag on returns, just the amount of corporate bloat in these companies. So when I hear scale initially from the traditional public market investor, you know, that's what I really see them doing is like, we want you to build a lean and mean company. We want executive compensation to be aligned with actually making a return on investment versus production growth at all costs, which has been the, the mantra for over the last decade, really since the shale boom began was, I don't care how much money you spend, as long as I see this production growth going up. And then, you know, through two downturns, People, investors have said, okay, you guys have destroyed enough capital. Let's actually make some money because these wells, a currently producing well makes money at the $35 to $40 WTI we have today and in most basins. But the vast majority of new wells being drilled, they were being drilled today, the vast majority of the acreage in the United States is not really economic, specifically at $35 oil. So that's something that we will see with scale is people will be patient and they'll cut SGNA. You know, as far as maximizing our current assets, we have always maintained a very rigorous hedging philosophy. Whenever production comes online, you know, as I said, we underwrite a well at any given time. We're not going to participate in a well that we do not expect to make money. So once we have a basket of wells come online, we will typically hedge out 50 to 75% of that. You know, that may not be a maximizing value play in some people's mind, but what it does is it locks in a return for your investor on a single well basis that ultimately flows up to the asset, I mean, to the fund level. Also, you know, just a focus on being smart about leverage, not not borrowing too much when you have a strong cash flow or prices increase, paying down leverage, don't necessarily borrow too much money to go make an acquisition and that's above what you're really comfortable with. The banks have gotten tighter. We're seeing lending levels being cut 20 to 30% below where they were prior. And that's not just due to the commodity price. It's due to the way that the assets are being underwritten. So having a good relationship and, and communicating with your bank and understanding in advance of when some of these problems could come up and being able to solve for that before you can get into a situation where you may be needing to make debt payments or, or going into some sort of going concern. I mean, those are things you can do immediately to kind of maximize value. And then in the interim, you just kind of bear down and you participate or buy into new assets where the drilling makes sense today, or, or you can buy PDP. We still see PDP trading around PD, PDP, PV 10-ish. I know there's some groups out there saying they're buying it at better metrics than that, but oftentimes we view that as some tweaks on their engineering where we may be bidding PV10 and buying the asset for more expensive than that. So PV7, PV8, which is a pretty interesting time that somebody's believing in either higher prices or lower costs going forward. But you know, the real way to maximize your assets to today is just be patient, hedge, don't get over levered, and then bolt on those opportunities when they show up going forward. I think that leads nicely into the next point I want to bring in, which, of course, is the bolt, what you alluded to at the end there, bolting on new opportunities to your portfolio. Going forward, I know your current focus is entirely on non-op. Going forward, is that going to continue to be your focus or are you seeing opportunities out there now in the low price environment, just given the change in market dynamics to bring on opportunities, assets that sit outside of, of your core portfolio? So non-core opportunities such as operated assets. What's your take yeah, on so that? 
you know, I mentioned how people get in trouble through leverage or not hedging or being a little too speculative, right? Something that we focused on as a firm is like, we are really good at unconventional non-op in the lower 48. That is our bread and butter. And we do not expect to shift from that in any way, shape or form. You know, that said, there is a ton of opportunity out there. And what we'll do is if the right deal stumbles across our door, we have very good relationships across the industry, both with operators in our portfolio and many of the private equity firms here. And we would work on a creative way to partner on those assets and create a non-op out of it. It could be as easy as a operated asset where we end up putting up for the capital and pick your private equity firm team uh, takes 75% and we go heads up. We could look at some more complex structures, whereas, you know, we partner with a, a group that is willing to take some debt and exchange that for working interest. And then so ultimately, you know, like a, a big hedge fund maybe understands the debt side of this and really has then the operator has some attractive assets in a way to monetize that could be, you know, we buy out some of the debt, create a working interest for ourselves and help manage it for that firm as well. And then ultimately our investors get exposure creatively on, on a very cheap manner where the fund would be invested alongside it as well. So it's not necessarily as much, you know, looking at different strategies, but it's creatively getting into assets and creating a position for ourselves and what we are really good at through our industry relationships. And just the, the final point I want to touch upon with regards to scalability and creating value in times like these is around the exit. Obviously, right now, the A&D market in, in the US upstream EMP sector is almost non-existent. It's a waiting game, many would argue, and, and it just will require a bit more time maybe for companies to really become distressed to start narrowing that bid-ask spread or accepting lower valuations for certain asset types. But I know you as a firm are putting particular focus on getting creative uh, to find more optionality around the exit at the moment. There's a huge amount of uncertainty surrounding long-term demand recovery, commodity price recovery, of course, increasing environmental pressures on the industry. And this is all having a, a really hard effect on the A&D market, which is almost non-existent today. Many investors are abandoning the traditional flip and sell model and turning to producing out longer life assets, like you've alluded to, like approach you've adopted since you began, really, that just dividends back to shareholders as the best way to make their money back. So what are the creative exit options that companies and investors like yourselves can turn to today? I know securitizations are something that, that we've spoken about in the past. They're nascent in the EMP space, but they are something that we're starting to see. Maybe an, an interesting approach that is worth exploring. Just, I suppose, for those listening that may not be as familiar with securitizations, could you just explain what they are, how they work, and what the advantages of taking this approach are? How can you create value through this approach? Sure, absolutely. I think if you're in a position as a company to where you don't have to sell assets today and you are cash flow positive, you're most likely going to weather the storm. So a healthy company should be acquiring assets in today's environment. You know, you don't really necessarily want to sell into a forward curve like it looks like today on both the oil and natural gas side. So I think as much of that is, you know, if you are a healthy company, that's slowing down the A&D market. And then a lot of the time on the sell side, a lot of these folks, as I mentioned, are over levered. So they actually can't sell an asset because it's not going to cover what the bank has loaned against it. So those are two of the bigger hurdles, specifically in our size of the market on the A&D side, that's a really a slowdown. And so 
from a securitization standpoint, what we've seen in our space, you know, there's been a, a couple of companies that have been able to go out and create a bond offering actually against their wellbore only interest. So you would take the leasehold and take just and, and take out the wellbores that are currently producing. Say, hey, this basket of wellbores have a specific cash flow. You layer on some longer dated hedges, five to 10 years, create a 10 year bond around it that has a fixed amount of principal and interest payments to the bondholder that ultimately pays off the debt through cash flow that's hedged out over a 10-year time period. You know, it's pretty interesting from an owner of the assets perspective because should prices appreciate, say you've got 90% hedge, you still got some upside there. The bondholders like it because the assets themselves are cash flowing. You can identify the single well bore, you know, that down to a single well bore level. But at the same time, if you're in hundreds of well bores across multiple basins, you know, with a mix of both the of oil and gas hydrocarbons, you've got a pretty good idea what that payout structure is going to look like. You know, obviously you're going to leave in some room for workovers and, you know, some possible changes that may happen in the industry. But, you know, that is something that is fairly nascent. We've seen interest in those sorts of securities, especially considering the interest rate paid to bondholders is going to be higher than what they can get, you know, going and buying a lot of single A core corporate or better today, but it still may not be quite as high as the high yield market, but the assets themselves are cash flowing and that line of sight to them. So that's something we've seen. Kirkland and Ellis, the law firm, has been kind of a, lead, a leader in, in putting some of those together. And that's something you'll see, I think you'll continue to see folks take advantage of as the appetite for yield, especially in what looks like it's going to be a lot lower for longer interest rate environment. It's a way for investors to increase that yield in their portfolio. I think similarly, facts have also been creating a lot of noise this year. Maybe you could just give a quick explanation of how a SPAC worked and why certain companies and advisors are turning to them now in the current environment when historically they've tended not to. So SPACs have been all the rage. I actually came into my office last week and said, hey, we should raise a SPAC. Everybody else is doing it. And I kind of said it in jest, but then I started to do a little research and started talking to some additional groups. And and, you, and it's right. Almost everybody is doing it. You know, one of the reasons why SPACs are pretty interesting in today's environment is one, just the traditional, hey, only oil and gas assets are not the rage on Wall Street with an election coming up here in four days and ESG policies being very at forefront. And energy returns, I actually pulled it up earlier. So you know, the energy index in the as part of the S&P 500 has been the worst performing sector the six of the last eight years, second worst one of those years and the best one year. So, you know, when you have investors that have not made money in the space, they're really not interested in putting more money into just pure oil and gas assets. So one of the benefits of a SPAC is you may say, hey, yeah, we can do oil and gas investments in our SPAC, but we can also do renewables or we can do some sort of tech play within energy focused or different ways that you can say, hey, yeah, we're raising this capital, but it's not just a pure upstream play. And investors are more interested in that today, specifically kind of in the public space. And from a team standpoint, you know, if you've got the track record, you're able to put up three to five percent of the initial capital to go raise the SPAC. You know, you may get a hundred, two hundred, three hundred million dollar or more kind of equity commitment. 
out of that, I mean, the larger SPACs are one up to one and a half billion dollars where you can put up your risk capital, call it three to five percent of it. And then upon acquisition of a company, take a private company public, the management team, you know, ends up with about 20 percent of the initial equity. So that is very attractive from a management perspective, becomes very attractive from a private company perspective, because all of a sudden you're creating liquidity and the end all investors are able to go play in a space where liquidity may be lacking, but they're able to go and, and get exposure and then ultimately have a liquid security that they can trade or sell. Or Those are all different reasons why SPACs have become more popular in the last, really the last six months. So you think SPACs could be a way of overcoming or getting around some of the headwinds that the oil and gas industry is facing at the moment and also maybe overcoming this perception that investors have built up towards the industry over the past six to eight years, as you mentioned? I think that that is absolutely true. And then, you know, you couple that with it being one of the few avenues that are open for capital to come into the space and for teams like ourselves and other very good management teams to raise capital. People are going to do what they can because the fact of the matter is this industry is going to be starved of capital over the next five years if more money doesn't come in and, and barring an increase in prices. There's going to be a few people that have money and they are going to be able to demand very strong premiums or discounts on the assets that they're acquiring just because of a dearth of capital in the space. And because stacks are open right now, I think that's why you see more people focused on. That's interesting. And I think just before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask one final question, which is, I know something you said to me, which really stood out when we last spoke was if the industry does what investors are demanding. So we've heard about this before. Now we've spoken about with investors that from across our network, we've heard about it publicly, we've heard about it on online debates, etc, etc. So investors want better cost structures, stop overpaying executives, let's not reinvest all cash flow into growing production at all costs, improve ESG practice. You said if the industry can achieve that, then oil and gas can become a cash flow monster. That's quite a statement. And I think one that might generate a bit of excitement to, um, to some of those listening in. Can you just speak a little bit to that? What is it going to take to get there? And is cash flow the only way to restore investor confidence? I don't think it's the only way, but I think it's the best way. So from a, you know, let's start with a corporate structure. You know, I mentioned earlier, the reason why a lot of these large companies are smashing together or buying each other is, as I mentioned, if if you can run one large company, a really large company with one and a half or one and a quarter of the amount of people versus two companies running twice as many people, there's obviously efficiencies there. Executive compensation in alignment with share price returns or distributions, those are things that investors will like. As an industry, the United States onshore from an ESG you know, space, the environmental aspects, you know, we'll, we're going to get better at flaring that we know that's going to happen under either administration that may come in. Being very smart about some messaging about how natural gas has benefited the environment in the United States and has benefits around the world, especially on, in countries where they still have a lot of coal or being burned, you know, those environmental impacts there. We need to be better about talking about the social and the governance sides of these things. The energy space has done a great job of helping people out of poverty historically. We need to continue to talk about that. Be smart about a transition to a greener future. You know, it's, we need to be focused on it. We need to talk about it, but at the same time, we need to make returns for investors. 
a lot of green strategies today are just focused on, hey, we don't really care if we make money. We're doing this for the greater good, which is fine until a pensioner can't get their paycheck because they haven't made money in that space. So with a reduced cost structure at an oil and gas level, as I mentioned, you know, oil wells make money. Currently producing wells make money in the United States at $35. They definitely do, you know, across the world as well. So if you can cut all of this bloat out, kind of starve the system from capital, get through this demand destruction that we've never seen before. I mean, COVID as a pandemic taken at its worst 15 million barrels a day of demand out of the market in the second quarter, you know, 30 million barrels a day at the absolute worst back in April. And, you know, forward looking, we're still expecting a few million barrels a day of demand just gone from the market until we kind of get through this pandemic completely. And so we're going to have to not drill more wells. And then, you know, once you create a cost structure where you're break even in a $40 environment and demand comes back, you haven't invested this cash. Capital, and all of a sudden, you're looking at an environment under even the rosiest of green scenarios where we're undersupplied in the world for oil and natural gas, but specifically oil. And if you have a company that's making money at $40 a barrel, and all of a sudden we're at $60 a barrel, and you're not just going and drilling every well you can just because all of a sudden you want to, you create a huge amount of cash flow at a corporate level that you ultimately may say, hey, you know, we can, instead of making a 3% or a 5% annual distribution, we can make a 10% distribution, free cash flow and reinvest and grow production, you know, and all of those things. Eventually, I think it takes, you got to be able to prove that you can do it for a year plus for any investor that's been on the sidelines to come back. But eventually those sorts of returns an institutional investor is going to look at their peer that has exposure to energy, and all of a sudden, they are getting beat by their – the benchmark is beating other people. And institutional investors want to be the best performers as well, and that will draw them back to the space because you just – you can't ignore the returns. Great. It's a great note to finish on. And I think there's a huge job ahead, clearly. I mean, if the industry can react and implement some of these practices that you're talking about, then I'll be excited to see what type of recovery we might see and, and might be able to expect over the short to midterm. So certainly something to keep an eye on. And I look forward to keeping the conversation going to see how you guys are getting on with that. But I mean, Griffin, it's been great speaking with you. I really appreciate you sharing your views on the industry, your approach towards the industry and, and your take on the non-op space and, and why that's so effective. Just to wrap up, I, I want to hand it over to you just for some closing comments to share your views on the next steps for the industry, to share any partnership opportunities you might be interested in hearing about, and just to give a closing message to any of your industry peers listening in. Sure thing, Ben. Yeah, thank you so much for having us on. This has been a, a great opportunity to share some of our views, get a little more exposure within the industry. As an industry, we all need to work together and be focused on what's best for the world, for our industry, for our children. And hydrocarbons are going to be a huge part of that for our lifetime and most likely our children's lifetimes. And that's something that we don't need to lose sight of and being smart about it. In a world today where technology is taking a bigger role and it sometimes is not the best for our industry, but when we come together and work together, it'll, it will ultimately be in a better place. As far as other things that we could see out there, we're excited that our friends in the industry have continued to see some successes. And, you know, cleaning this up will ultimately make us stronger as we go into the next 30 plus years of the industry. Hey guys, thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. 
If you would like to speak with Griffin about any of the points that he has raised in today's episode, or if you would be interested in exploring potential partnership opportunities with Greylock Energy Partners, then please email me at benjamin.west at energycouncil.com. The Energy Council represents the most senior and influential network of energy executives and investors in the world. Throughout the year, we leverage our relationships and industry knowledge to facilitate introductions on behalf of our clients to help them place capital, buy and sell deals, and form new partnerships. If you are interested in learning more about the ways we can help your team by connecting you with executives like Griffin, then please email me directly or visit our website at www.oilandgascouncil.com. Also, Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network who you think would enjoy. Thanks and see you next time.